From a detective's notebook by P.G. Woodhouse. We were sitting around the club fire. Old General Malpas, Driscoll the QC, young Freddie Finch Finch and myself. When Adrian Mulliner, the private investigator, gave a soft chuckle. This was, of course, in the smoking room where soft chuckling is permitted. <laughs> I wonder, he said, if it would interest you chaps to hear the story of what I always look upon as the greatest triumph of my career. We said, no, it wouldn't, and he began. <laughs> <coughs> Looking back over my years as a detective, I recall many problems, the solution of which made me modestly proud. But though all of them undoubtedly presented certain features of interest and tested my powers to the utmost, I can think of none of my feats of ratiocination that gave me more pleasure than the unmasking of the man Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> now better known as the fiend of Baker Street. Here General Malpas looked at his watch, said, bless my soul, and hurried out. <coughs> no doubt to keep some appointment that had slipped his mind. I had at first so little to go on, Adrian Mulliner proceeded, but just as a brief sniff at a handkerchief or a shoe will start one of Mr. Thurber's bloodhounds giving quick service, so the merest suggestion of anything that I might call fishy enough to set me off on the trail, and, and so is the merest, and what first aroused my suspicion of this sinister character was his particular peculiar financial position. <laughs> Here we had a man who was evidently much was obliged to watch the pennies closely, for when we are introduced to him he is, according to Dr. Watson's Fred Stamford, bemoaning himself because he could not find someone to go halves with him in some nice rooms he had found and which were too much for his purse. Watson offers himself as a fellow lodger, and they settle down in, I quote, a couple of comfortable bedrooms and a large sitting room at 221B Baker Street. Now, I never lived in Baker Street at the turn of the century, but I know old gentlemen who had done so, and they assured me that in those days you could get a bedroom and sitting room and three meals a day for a pound a week. An extra bedroom no doubt made the thing come higher, but thirty shillings must have covered the rent and there was never a question of a man as honest as Dr. Watson failing to come up with his fifteen each Saturday. It followed, then, <laughs> <laughs> that even allowing for expenditure in the way of Persian slippers, <laughs> tobacco, disguises, revolver cartridges, cocaine, and spare fiddle strings, Holmes would have been getting by on a couple of pounds or so weekly. And with this modest state of life, he appeared to be perfectly content. In a position where you or I would have spared no effort to add to our resources, he simply did not bother about the financial side of his profession. Let us take a few instances of <laughs> <coughs> and see what he made as a 
consulting detective. Where are you going to school? Uh, out, said Hugh, <laughs> suiting action to the word. Adrian Mulliner resumed his tale. In the early days of their association, Watson speaks of being constantly bundled off into his bedroom because Holmes needed the sitting room for interviewing callers. I have to use this place as a place of business, he said, and these people are my clients. And who were these clients? <laughs> I quote, a gray-headed, seedy visitor who was closely followed by a slipshod elderly woman, and after these came a railway porter in his velveteen uniform. Not much cash in that. <laughs> and things did not noticeably improve later on, for we find his services engaged by a stenographer, an average commonplace British tradesman, a commissioner, a city clerk, a Greek interpreter, a landlady, you arranged an affair for a lodger of mine last year, quote, and a Cambridge undergraduate. <laughs> so, far from making money as a consulting detective, he must have been a good deal out of pocket most of the time. In a study in Scarlet, Inspector Gregson says there's been a bad business during the night at three Lauriston Gardens off the Brixton Road, and he would esteem it a great kindness if Holmes would favor him with his opinion. Off goes Holmes and a hansom from Baker Street to Brixton, a fare of several shillings. Dispatches a long telegram, another two or three bob to the band. <laughs> <coughs> Summons, quote, half a dozen of the dirtiest and most ragged street Arabs that I ever clapped eyes on, end quote, and gives each of them a shilling. And finally, calling on police constable Bunce, the officer who discovered the body, takes half a sovereign from his pocket and, after playing with it pensively, presents it to the constable. The whole affair must have cost him considerably more than a week's rent at Baker Street, and no hope of getting it back from Inspector Gregson, for Gregson, according to Holmes himself, was one of the smartest of all the Scotland Yarders. <laughs> <coughs> Inspector Gregson, <laughs> Inspector Lestrade, those clients, hmm. I found myself thinking a good deal about them, and it was not long before the truth dawned on me that they were merely cheap actors, hired to, the, to deceive Dr. Wadston. For what would the ordinary private investigator have said to himself when starting out in business? He would have said, before I take on work for a client, I must be sure that the client has the stuff. <laughs> the daily sweetener and the little something down in advance are of the essence. <laughs> and would have had those landladies and those Greek interpreters out of that sitting room before you could say bloodstain. Yet <coughs> Holmes, who could not afford a pound a week for lodgings, never bothered. <laughs> significant. <laughs> On what seemed to me the shallow pretext that he had had to see a man about a dog, <coughs> Freddy Finch Finch now excused himself <laughs> and left the room. <coughs> 
Later, Adrian Mulliner went on, the thing became absolutely farcical. For all pretense that he was engaged in gainful employment was dropped by himself and the clients. I quote Dr. Watson, quote, He tossed a crumpled letter across to me. It was dated Montague Place upon the previous evening and ran thus. Dear Mr. Holmes, I am anxious to consult you as to whether or not I should accept a situation which has been offered me as a governess. I shall call at half-past ten tomorrow if I do not inconvenience you. Yours faithfully, Violet Hunter. Now, the Fian investigator could expect from a governess, even one in full employment, could scarcely be more than a few shillings. Yet when two weeks later Miss Hunter wired Please be at the Black Swan Hotel at Winchester at midday tomorrow. Holmes dropped everything and sprang into the 9.30 train. Adrian Mulliner chuckled softly. You see where all this is heading? I said, no, I don't. I was the only one there and had to... <laughs> had to say something. <laughs> tut, tut, man, you know my methods. Apply them. Why is a man casual about money? Because of, he has a lot of it. Precisely. But you said Holmes didn't. I said nothing of the sort. That was merely the illusion he was trying to create because he needed a front for his true activities. He was pulling the stuff from another source. Where is the big money? Where has it always been? In crime. <laughs> Bags of it, no income tax. <coughs> <laughs> if you want to salt away a few millions for a rainy day, you don't spring into 9.30 trains to go see governesses. You become a master criminal, sitting like a spider at the center of its web and egging your core of assistance on to steel jewels and naval treaties. <laughs> it was not long before I saw daylight and all the pieces of the puzzle fell into place. Holmes was Professor Moriarty. <laughs> what was that name again? <laughs> 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 Professor... Moriarty. <laughs> the bird was forever slowly oscillating his face from side to side in a curiously reptilian fashion. <laughs> That's the chap. But Holmes's face didn't forever oscillate slowly <laughs> <laughs> from side to side in a curiously reptilian fashion. Nor <laughs> did Professor Moriarty's. Holmes said it did. And to whom? <laughs> to Dr. Watson, purely in order to sure ensure that the misleading description got publicity. Watson never saw Moriarty. All he knew about him was what Holmes told him on the evening of April 24th, 1891, and he made a little slip on that occasion. Watson, Holmes. When he said that on his way to Watson's he had been attacked by a ruff with a bludgeon, a Napoleon of crime, anxious to eliminate someone he disliked, would have thought up something better than ruffs with bludgeons. 
dropping cobras down the chimney is the mildest thing that would have occurred to him. <laughs> it was that little slip that first put me on Holmes's track. Well, that's the story, old man. <laughs> the whole story? <laughs> yes. <laughs> there isn't any more? <laughs> no. I chuckled softly. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.